You won't find me wasting much time on each page because we have a lot of ground to cover, and I hope you'll be able to stay with me. I begin with some assumptions because every conversation has certain basic assumptions in it. And these are the assumptions we begin with this evening because without this framework or foundation, we can't even get started. First of all, we believe that God is, and I hope that everyone here tonight is, is a person that fears God and believes that he is. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. We first of all believe that there's a God. Then we believe that God gave scripture. God just didn't leave us like the deists used to believe. Few of them left. He just didn't leave us without help. He gave scripture so that we might know his will. Now, scripture is absolute truth. And that's an assumption that we're making this evening. That is the basis for this study, that the Bible is absolutely true. When I say absolutely true, I mean that no opinions count tonight. Your opinion, or my opinion, or the opinions of 4,000 good and godly men do not matter. What matters is what the Bible says. Because there are, quote, good and godly men, unquote, on both sides of every issue that the Bible has to deal with. What I mean is no tradition. It doesn't matter what they have done in the past or what you might have done in your life. We have to throw that out when we come to the Word of God. We must believe that Scripture is absolute truth. And I also mean here that we have no fear of man. I hope there's no one here tonight that's afraid of man, afraid of what someone else might think with the position they would take on the Word of God. The Bible tells us that the fear of man brings a snare. If you're afraid of what other people think, you have automatically set a snare for your soul for you to miss the truth of Scripture, if you're afraid of men. Now, we make an assumption here that the King James Version is Scripture, and I hope using a green pen doesn't throw anyone off. That's a change for you repeaters that have been here before. The King James Version is Scripture. Now, that was seminar number one that we had four months ago, three months ago, I guess, in which we dealt with the Bible version issue. But tonight, we assume the King James Version is the Word of God. We're not going to deal with some non-existent original manuscripts or other modern translations that have been proved to be false and filled with internal contradictions, mistranslations, and errors We've covered that before. Tonight, we look at the King James Bible and use that as the scriptures of God for us. We assume that Satan is at war against God and truth because the Bible tells us that. One of the fundamental aspects of the Bible is that it tells us very early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, that Satan is at war against God and man on this planet and the truth of God. Because of that, Satan has influenced men and their own depraved, wicked hearts would rather choose their own rules of righteousness than submit to the rules that God has established in Scripture. And not only that, men, have also, men would also prefer extremes than using God's wisdom. Did you know when you, when you think about moral issues, if you can make everything black and white, it's a whole lot easier to live that way. 
easier from man's perspective. But God has left a lot of things, not neither black nor white, and he leaves it up to our wisdom to apply scriptural principles. But man has a tendency to want his own rules and to go to extremes. These are assumptions I'm making about the nature of man and Satan's warfare against truth. Now our goals for this evening, our goals, and they're very specific, I have very specific goals for bringing this subject. Whenever a Baptist minister attempts to deal with the subject of wine, it's a frightening prospect, especially to some that are strangers. But I do this because there are some valuable benefits that you may, can realize from a consideration of this subject. I, first of all tonight, by the grace of God, want to promote some honest and careful Bible study. Not dishonest and loose or superficial Bible study. Our purpose tonight is not to deal with the subject of wine socially or scientifically as much as we want to deal with what does the Bible say about this subject that's caused so much confusion, turmoil, and fighting in the ranks of those who claim to believe the Bible. That's what we want to do tonight. I want to test your loyalty. And we, we will find out, and you'll find out, and God will know whether you are loyal to His Word or you are loyal to your emotions. Because this is a very emotional subject. I want to remind you of a verse that I believe probably most of you know. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. That verse is not a verse for comfort, that no matter what comes, we ought to trust in the Lord. That verse is a verse of warning that we ought to put our trust in whatever the Lord says, and not lean to our own understanding. The first rule of wisdom that Solomon tried to teach in the book of Proverbs is that we ought to submit ourselves to what God has said, and not to lean to our own understanding. We cannot trust our own understanding. And I'll have other verses to bring to bear on that point. But remember Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And whatever the Bible tells us tonight, that's where we want to stand. But I want to test, by the grace of God, your loyalty to Scripture versus your emotions. We want to define the concept and the use, the proper use of Christian liberty. Maybe you've heard the terms before. What does Christian liberty mean? We want to define that tonight. I want to contend against the doctrine of the Pharisees. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. I don't believe his warning was vain. Paul had to spend a great deal of his time fighting the doctrine of the Pharisees. We'll identify it and deal with it this evening. I want to deliver God's saints from false bondage. Now, if God binds us to do something, that's good bondage. We want to be the bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't want to be the slaves of men and man-made rules, commandments, or tradition. I want to magnify the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to bring liberty. And we're going to look at a couple of verses that deal with that fact. Jesus came to, to bring liberty, and I want to defend the Lord Jesus Christ and his doctrine. Those are our goals. 
Primarily, it's to promote the use of the Bible. I don't believe you'll find a better issue that you are all capable of understanding clearly to take the Word of God and to compare it to things that men have said or written. You'll be able to do that with the subject tonight, and I hope to give you the tools and build your confidence to know that you are able to do it. You don't need a degree in Greek or Hebrew to answer the questions. Now, I said it was primarily a study of Scripture, so let's get some wine facts out of the way. The first wine fact I want to get out of the way is wine is not grape juice. Wine is not grape juice. Now, whenever I refer to a definition in here, it's not an opinion. I'm not telling you that I think wine means wine and wine doesn't mean grape juice. I'm referring to a book called the Oxford English Dictionary. It is the standard on the English language, and there are no other standards. It is the master standard of the English language. If you go to the Greenville Library or some library that has it, the older edition was in 14 volumes. I believe the new one's in about 21. It's an exhaustive defense, an explanation of the English language from its very origins back with the Anglo-Saxons forward to our present time. Wine is the fermented beverage of grapes. When we say the word wine, we mean grapes and their juice that have been fermented to produce an intoxicating or alcoholic beverage. Wine is the natural product of grapes. We'll see that in just a moment. While the Bible uses the word wine a couple hundred times, it also uses a few times the expression strong drink. Strong drink is other fermented beverages. It doesn't say stronger drink. You know, I think some have thought that it said wine and stronger drink. It doesn't say that. It says wine and strong drink. You know, we have a number of drinks, if you'll allow those words to come from the lips of a Baptist minister. This nation has other drinks that are not wine that are strong. That is, they're not like water. They have an, into- they have an intoxicating effect. When the Bible uses strong drink, it's referring to other fermented beverages or other alcoholic beverages. If wine and strong drink are used excessively, they'll cause drunkenness. That's what we mean when we say alcoholic or fermented beverages. Our attempt tonight is not a scientific study of the fermentation process of wine, but a few facts will help you understand. And I want to say this. I I do have experience in this category, and that is coming from circles that practiced total abstinence, the widespread and gross ignorance about alcoholic beverages is astounding. So that conclusions are made by people that are purely fantasy rather than reality about the nature of, for instance, wine. Let me point out just a couple of things about wine. Wine contains about 80% water. That's why, or grapes contain about 80% water and 15% sugar. You know, they're juicy and they're sweet while they're on the vine. The skins of grapes are covered with microscopic fungus that provides natural yeast. You know, those skins exposed to the pollination process and the elements are covered with very small fungus. 
When the grapes are crushed with their skins, the yeast and the sugar combine to form alcohol, which is a chemical compound, and it's created naturally just by crushing grapes and letting them sit in their own juice. When the alcohol level reaches 14% at the most, some grapes don't even get that high. This is the highest that any grapes get with, without you messing with the fermentation process. The alcohol has reached the point where it kills the remaining yeast and stops fermentation. Wine can't be stronger than 14%. If you find wine stronger than 14%, it's what's called fortified wine. It's been doctored. It can be less than 14% because some grapes won't even reach that level. Extra steps have to be taken to either avoid fermentation, which would bring about what we would call grape juice, or to increase it above 14%, which is generally called fortified. Or if you distill it, you can raise the alcohol content also. Now, juice requires that either you boil it or you cool it because fermentation will only take place in a narrow range of temperature of about 10 or 15 degrees. But that's, that's how wine comes about. If you crush grapes and let them sit in their own juice, they will naturally ferment, and when they reach 14% alcohol at the most, it'll stop the fermentation process automatically. Page three of wine facts. Wine generally has five to 15% alcohol. There's a range there because grapes differ. God has made different kinds of grapes with different fermentation capabilities, and it will vary all the way up to 14 or 15 percent. The process can vary that would change that, and if you dilute it with water or some other substance, you can lower it. But generally, just naturally produced wine is going to be somewhere between 5 and 15 percent. Now, I've stuck some other things in this page, even though I'm calling it wine facts, because the Bible does use the expression strong drink. Beer generally has 2 to 5% alcohol. Most people aren't aware that wine is three times beer when it comes to its intoxicating properties. Beer is made the same process. Instead of fermenting grapes, you ferment wheat or other grains. Same process takes place. It's not quite as natural as wine because you usually they usually add malt or other uh, substances to enhance the fermentation process. You know, other drinks range all over the map. One and a half ounces of whiskey equals four ounces of wine equals 12 ounces of of beer, it doesn't matter which one of those you were to drink, you would get the same amount of alcohol. Wine coolers are a, a drink that's been popularized in recent years. That's simply wine diluted with fruit juice. Now, wine tolerance. Wine tolerance, that's the ability to drink wine or another strong drink, and it have an effect on you varies greatly in people. It varies depending on whether you drink it with a meal or not. If you have your stomach full of food and you drink a glass of wine along with a meal, it's going to have little effect. It depends on the amount of time in which you were to drink something. 
depends on your bodily size. A 240-pound man is not going to be affected by the same amount as a 120-pound woman in general. There's genetic differences. You know, I think, I think most of you in here have probably heard about the, the, the uh, fact that American Indians were more susceptible to the effects of alcohol than were most others, and it, and it was used against them in the early days of this nation. And the experience, if a person is used to drinking, their body automatically builds up an ability to handle it and process it without it affecting them as much. These are all distilled drinks. I just mentioned them for your information. All those are distilled. Whiskey is basically beer distilled. Distilled means you boil off the water so that you can raise the alcoholic content. Beer and wine have numerous health benefits. The more that medical science has been able to determine about them, I mean, I know someone who just came out of the Greenville Hospital system with a heart attack, and he was recommended by his cardiac doctors to have a couple of glasses of red wine a day because it's an effective tranquilizer in loosening, in loosening the arteries of the heart. And when you have a heart attack, the problem is your arteries are too narrow and restricted for blood to the heart. Nursing mothers, there's no better substance known to produce milk in a nursing mother than malt beer because of its combination of B vitamins and yeast in a natural form. You know, it, it's, it can be used as an antiseptic, as an anesthesia agent. It's beer's food. You know, beer, in it, for the sake of this page of wine facts, beer is cold grain soup. Beer is cold grain soup. If you were on an island, you would not want a case of distilled water compared to a case of beer, if that's all you had, because you wouldn't survive on water. But you could on beer. You wouldn't drink the case at one time either. And I'm not trying to be facetious. It's cold grain soup with a little bit of alcohol, 2 to 4%. Let's leave the facts. Let's look at the issue itself. The issue. Some Christians, here's one position that's taken. Some Christians teach that any use of wine is sin and condemned by the Bible or condemned by Scripture. Wine may be a matter of fellowship. Now, my experience in Baptist churches, the church I was raised in, in in the front of our hymnal, we had a church covenant that anyone joining that church had to agree to. And one of the principal points of that church covenant is that there would be no buying, selling, transporting, or use of alcoholic beverages. That was a church covenant. That's how important the issue was to the Baptist church that I was raised in. Some churches make it that important. It may be a matter of fellowship. If you're going to use it, you can't be a member here, is the position taken. If anyone differs with that position, they're considered either carnal or lascivious or worldly for using it. The extreme persons under this position might even avoid cooking wines or beer-battered food or restaurants serving liquor and pass church 
guidelines or school guidelines or family guidelines against going into such a place. Now there's a second position. Some other Christians teach that wine used in moderation is allowed by the Bible. Drunkenness is condemned, but not the wine. If anyone differs with them, they want to call them legalistic and pharisaical. Many Christians are confused and fall in between these two positions. Some use it only for medicinal purposes. Some use it at the Lord's Supper and nowhere else. Some use it because they like it once in a while, but they have a great deal of guilt whenever they do so. And we want to try to deal with the issue well enough that we can find where we ought to stand between or on one of those positions. The history. Let's remember American history just a little bit. And I hope you will listen to me right now. American history has formed a great deal of what you think about this subject rather than the Bible forming what you think about this subject. From 1920 to 1923, there was a constitutional amendment that made it illegal to make, transport, or sell wine in this nation. It was called, that period of time was called prohibition. It lasted 13 years. It was called the Volstead Act that defined intoxicating liquor as one half of one percent. That's where we get the word proof. One half of one percent is one proof. If something was one percent alcohol, it would be two proof. If you read something that's 25% alcohol, like your NyQuil, it's 50 proof. It's equivalent to some halfway decent whiskey. If you look at your scope and your cough medicine, you'll find that it's up around wine. But this is where proof came from with the Volstead Act that said our nation, it was illegal to make, sell, or transport anything that was above one half of 1%. You know, you let cider sit for two days and you're running into problems with that. That's very low amount of alcohol. Billy Sunday was a very popular Presbyterian evangelist during, these are the years he lived, there in the early stages of this century. And he played a very large role along with some others in this movement. Much of the gospel during that time that was preached was a gospel against alcohol. Much of the preaching that was done was against saloons and against booze. And it took place during that time, and a, and a grassroots movement among Christians influenced our nation enough to pass a constitutional amendment that lasted for 13 years. Now that'll add some entertainment tonight, if we can have a few bugs like that on the screen, for those of you who noticed it. Now it was called the temperance movement. The temperance movement's a misnomer. That means it uh, was not properly named because temperance means moderation, but they defined it as abstinence. I'll be back to this point before the evening closes, but temperance equals moderation in the Bible, in the English language, anywhere. They called it the temperance movement, but there wasn't anything temperate about it. They were extreme. They were extreme in condemning the thing 
and not allowing anyone to use it at all with no liberty. That's extreme behavior. That's immoderate behavior. It wasn't really temperate. Temperate behavior is moderate, governed, ruled behavior. Though the law may have left in 1933, it's gone. Many Christians still look at wine as spiritually and morally evil. It's the effect of tradition. It's the effect of the training they've received. And it's the effect of teachers that they've had respect for, for one reason or another. And those three reasons together have, have influenced the, the way you think about things. I'm sure that you could think about some other denominational group that might hold a different position than you on some subject and realize for them to think honestly and objectively about what the Bible has to say on that subject, they're going to have to go against the tradition that they've lived with, the training that they've been under, and the teachers that they've highly respected. You remember that. Because when it comes to this subject, there's a great deal that we need to set aside and let the Word of God speak on behalf of God. And that's what I want to do this evening with you. The judge in every matter. What is the judge? David said in Psalm 119, which is the best chapter in the Bible about the Word of God, 176 short statements about the glory of Scripture. David said, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I've used that verse in previous seminars. I'll use it in seminars to come. It's a succinct statement of David's confidence in Scripture. Whatever the Bible says, we ought to believe that it's right, on whatever subject it deals with, and other positions than that ought to be hated. I didn't say to hate other people, and neither did David say that. He said to hate every false way that doesn't agree with the Word of God. Isaiah would write to the law. Let's go look at the law and to the testimony. Let's look at the testimony. If they, that is some position or some men, if they don't speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It's this word that we have to go to, the law and the testimony of God. God would say, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Do, do you believe that verse? Do you believe that you automatically think the way God thinks? Or do you believe that God gave you scripture to help you learn to think the way he thinks? He gave us his spirit. That helps us think the way God thinks, because if you didn't have His Spirit, you wouldn't even be here tonight or want to read the Bible. But God's ways are not our ways, and we want His ways. Jesus would say, In vain do men, they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We don't want the commandments of men tonight. We don't care. You should not care what men have commanded relative to this subject. We want what God said and what God has commanded. We want to prove all things and hold fast that which is good. That's Paul's warning to us in 1 Thessalonians. Let's make sure we prove everything and hold fast that which is good. And whatever God's word has said, that is good. If God says it, it's good, and we ought to hold it fast. The first point. Now that was sort of, that was sort of introductory. 
but we cover we, we laid a foundation of thinking that God is the one that determines what is right and what is wrong. And our purpose for looking at this subject, and we got some wine facts out of the way, which we'll which we may have to refer to once in a while through this, but we want to look at Scripture. We want, uh, we want to look at what God said, and we want to look at His ways. First of all, is drunkenness sin? There ought not to be any doubt about this subject at all. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul would say very plainly, and be not drunk, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Being drunk is an excessive use of wine. We'll have more to say on that. But be not drunk is the point I want at this moment. Peter wrote this over in 1 Peter 4. He said, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. You know, many men are converted who were once drunks. When we walked in excess of wine, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them, to the same excess of riot. You know, when men are converted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they don't do the things they used to do. And when drunks were converted in Peter's day, Peter said of them, they think it's strange that you don't run to that same excess that you used to. And he said, you Christians, why don't you just go ahead and consider that the time you spent in drunkenness in the past is enough. Notice he said, it ought to suffice us. The, the abuse of things in the past ought to be enough. Christians ought to have different lives. Drunkenness is condemned here by a condemnation of an excess of wine. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's a rather interesting statement. Be not deceived, neither drunkards shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now I've left out some other sins there just for you to focus on the one we're dealing with tonight. Drunkenness and drunkards shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5 says that a work of the flesh is drunkenness along with a great number of others listed in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. It's a work of the flesh. Let's turn to page 2 of drunkenness is sin. It'll be page 11 in your folder. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul put it this way. Now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a drunkard, with such an one, no, not to eat. This is what we call exclusion right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If a church member in a church of Jesus Christ were to get drunk, he should be excluded from the fellowship of that church plainly on the basis and authority of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Drunk, if it became of public knowledge, and the church and or the community was aware of drunkenness, a church of Jesus Christ should put such a brother out because we are not to drink with them, eat with them, or have any company with a brother that behaves in such a way. Proverbs 23 says, Be not among wine-bibbers. Wine-bibbers are drunkards or in current language, we would say a wino. We don't say wine-bibbers. If you went downtown and found someone with two bottles in a bag laying beneath a park bench, you would not call them a wine-bibber, you'd call them a wino. But in the Bible, they didn't use the word wino, they used the word wine-bibber. A drunkard, one who is habitually drinking wine to excess. 
Paul would say in Romans 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. On this question, there is no doubt, there is no liberty. Drunkenness is condemned by the Bible. It's called an excess of wine. It's called being among, even being among drunkards is condemned by Proverbs 23. Drunkenness is a sin. Now, before you read that page, in the 1910s, teens, in the 1920s, when there was a number of proselyting, campaigning, crusading people trying to get prohibition passed in this nation, they would have said something about drunkenness being one drunk, I mean, one drink makes you partially drunk. I mean, if you're grossly drunk with ten drinks, then with one drink, you're partially drunk. And so they would condemn the whole thing. Now, that may sound cute. It may sound logical to some of you, but it doesn't matter. What does the Bible say about drunkenness? Does the Bible define drunkenness? And this is something you can hear preached. You can hear drunkenness preached against, but drunkenness ought to be defined. The Bible defines it rather clearly. But let's first of all look at the English words that our Bible gives us that describe it. And again, whenever you see a definition occurring, whether it looks like a dictionary entry or not, it's coming from the Oxford English Dictionary. Drunk. That has drunk intoxicating liquor to an extent which affects steady self-control. It means intoxicated. It means inebriated. It means overcome by alcoholic liquor. That's the English definition. Let's look up the word intoxication, since it's given as a synonym. The action of rendering stupid, insensible, or disordered in intellect with a drug or alcoholic liquor. Making drunk, there you can see that it's the same definition, or inebriated, the condition of being so stupefied. Those are, the, those are the definitions that our English language has for the word drunk or intoxicated. Your steady self-control is lost. You're overcome by alcohol. You're inebriated. You're stupefied. You do not have control of your intellect and the other orderly processes of your body. You're insensible, disordered in orientation and made stupid. Now, I want you to notice in these definitions, it doesn't say anything about the amount. Nothing about the amount. It doesn't say anything about one-tenth of one percent blood level like our laws for the highways. Now, our nation has a right to govern those highways, and I'm glad they do to some extent. I wish they did a whole lot more. You know, the cure for drunk driving is not really mad. The cure for drunk driving is just to take convicted ones out and shoot them. If they've killed someone in an automobile because they've rendered themselves senseless with alcohol, if they took them out and shot them, which is what the Bible would recommend, you'd have less drunk driving. You wouldn't need basketball players coming on television encouraging you not to drive and drink because you might have seen someone last week on 60 Minutes get shot publicly. Now that's a cure for drunk driving. But my point here is, when we look at the definition of drunk, 
or intoxication, nothing is said about a mouth. It's what renders you into this condition. This condition is drunkenness. Now let's look at the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about drunkenness. We don't need to be confused about what it means to be drunk. Drunkenness is babbling speech. This reference here is Hannah. Do you remember when Hannah was praying to herself and Eli looked over and said, thought the woman was drunk and he went and told her to put away her wine? Because talking to yourself, mumbling to yourself, is one of the characteristics of being drunk. Eli made that conclusion. He was wrong. Proverbs 23, 29 simply tells us that those that tarry long at the wine end up babbling. Acts 2, the men in Jerusalem, when they heard the apostles preaching in 15 different languages, thought they were drunk because they were babbling to them. Now, every man heard one of those apostles preaching the glorious works of God in his tongue, but the others sounded like barbarians to them. And so they thought they were drunk. There are three descriptions about speech. If you're drunk in the, according to the Bible, your speech is confused and you're babbling, talking to yourself, and you're, you've lost steady control of the speaking facility. Drunkenness is involuntary nakedness. This passage here is Noah. When Noah got off the ark, the first thing he did was decide he was going to be a husbandman. Planted a vineyard, crushed the grapes, made wine, drank it, became drunk, was found naked in his tent. Genesis 19, this is Lot's daughters. Lamentations 4.21 just says that nakedness is caused by alcohol, and so is it here in Habakkuk 2.15, which passage we'll be coming back to. What happens here is that inhibitions are taken away with excessive use of alcohol so that clothes come off. In the cases the Bible mentions, there's four of them. I hope you can see the bottom. You can't see all of the bottom. You can on your page. Drunkenness is staggering movements in the Bible. In Job 12, 25, it's called, the word stagger is used. In Psalm 107, it's real and stagger. In Isaiah, it's real, stagger, stumble, and fall. And we've all seen that probably at one time or another. And Jeremiah 25, 27 is the word fall. Unable to for steady self-control in walking. And you know what state troopers do when they stop someone that they suspect. They want to see them walk and perform certain bodily motions that cannot be done unless you have steady self-control of your faculties. Drunkenness in the Bible is a loss of judgment. Proverbs warns about forgetting or perverting what you know to be right. Over here in 2 Samuel 11, this is where David tried to get Uriah drunk so that he would go into his wife Bathsheba. I'm just going to assume that you know some of these Bible stories because we don't have time to deal with them. You'll have to go back and look at them later. In Isaiah 28, it speaks of erring in judgment through drink. Hosea talks about taking, taking away the heart through wine. 
Habakkuk talks about transgressing because of wine. It's a loss of judgment. We've seen that drunkenness is babbling speech, vulnerability to taking your clothes off and being naked, staggering bodily movements, and now it's a loss of judgment. You've lost your speaking ability, you can't control your body properly, and you can't think straightly. The Bible warns about that as being a characteristic of drunkenness. It's foolish conduct. Proverbs 20 talks about it mocking you, you know, making fun of you because you look like a fool when you're drunk. Proverbs 23 talks about contentions, strife. You might fight more quickly if you're drunk. And wounds, you fall down and hurt yourself, so when you wake up, you've got wounds, you don't know where you got them. This is the Bible describing drunkenness. It talks about the songs of the drunkard. And you've all heard, and it's almost a joke, about how drunkards sing. Because they've lost, you know, you at, if I was to ask most of you right now to come up here and sing, you'd have a strong reluctance to do so for the rest of us. But, you know, you get a drunkard, he'll sing anywhere. He'll, and it's because he's lost his sense of judgment. And drunkenness is not funny. And I, and I don't want to, to, to be funny at all about drunkenness. But I want you to see what it is, what the Bible says it is. Psalm 78 describes it as shouting, loud and boisterous, uncontrolled judgment as to what the proper volume level ought to be on your voice. You've lost a sense of judgment and control of your speaking ability. Drunkenness is associated with vomiting and sickness. You know, this passage right here says it's like sleeping at the top of a mast of a sailboat. I have slept at the bottom of a mast of a sailboat, and I've thrown up on yacht races in Lake Huron around the state of Michigan. I can't imagine what it'd be like on the top of the mast. But that's how it's described, and th this is 34 and 35. I hope you'll make that correction. Isaiah 19 speaks of vomit, Jeremiah of spewing, Hosea of being sick, Jeremiah, in this reference, of shaking. Bodily defenses. God is the glorious creator. He made your body that even if you're going to be stupid and drink too much alcohol, he's going to protect you. You know why you vomit? Your body is saying, I can't take all of this, and so you throw up some. It's rejection. The first defense is rejection. The second defense is you pass out. You know, you drink enough, if a drunk drinks enough, he's going to pass out. God, God is so merciful. You know, if somebody wants to drink so much that they're going to pass out, God ought to sit back. This is, you ought to be glad I'm not God. God ought to sit back and just let them go. Because they would asphyxiate them, they would destroy themselves on alcohol. But there's natural body mechanisms that even after you're drunk, God will reject it through vomiting or cause you to pass out where you can't drink anymore. Once in a while, and there was one in the paper this week, once in a while you'll read about usually some college student that's having some chugging contest that gets more in his system before his body can even reject it. And one was in the Greenville papers this week who consumed too much vodka, you know, like 24 ounces in 45 seconds, straight down, had never drunk before, 
And that's an assault on your bodily systems the body can't handle, and he died. Now, they think that's cool to drink to an excess like that. There's no profit, purpose, or wisdom at all in such folly. And that man didn't survive it. But the body has certain defense mechanisms built in, and vomiting will take over when you are have drunk to the point of drunkenness and are trying to drink through it. Drunkenness is described as personal poverty in a couple of places. If you drink, you're not going to be getting ahead. You can usually tell a drunkard by his family, financial, and other parts of his lives falling apart. Drunkenness defined. Drunkenness is excessive drinking. It's not drunkenness and drinking are not the same thing. Drinking is using something, and drunkenness is abusing that thing. Drunkenness, Proverbs 23 calls it tarrying long at the wine. Isaiah describes it as morning to evening type of drinking. Ephesians that we've already looked at says it's an excess when you're drunk with wine. 1 Peter 4, 3, which we looked at, also used the word excess. Now, drunkenness doesn't have to be, you don't have to pass out to prove that you're drunk. Because I read in the Bible that David made Uriah drunk, but he did not lose his consciousness. Do you remember Uriah had purposed in his heart he wasn't going to go home to his wife if all of his friends were out in the battlefield? And David tried his best to get him drunk so he'd go home to his wife? Even when he was drunk and sleeping on the doorstep, he wouldn't go in. Do you remember that? In the Word of God. So, you don't have to pass out to prove you're drunk, and I'm not trying to limit drunkenness to passing out. I want to take everything we've just looked at in three pages, and that is drunkenness. One or more of those characteristics is drunkenness. What's sort of interesting is that, you know, even prohibitionists get drunk every now and then, and they drink so much, they pass out. It's called anesthesia. You know what happens when you go to the hospital and you need surgery? Now, it used to be different. What was it, 30 years ago? They'd put the little mask over your face. I remember I had hernia surgery when I was 10 from jumping out of trees. But when I was 10, I had hernia surgery. I remember them telling me about this gas, and I said, there's no way it's going to touch me. I was a cocky 10-year-old. I remember laying there on that hospital bed and that nurse coming at me with this little thing to put over my nose. I didn't last two seconds. I mean, that stuff works. It is, here's the chemical compound called ether. That, e that is ether. I want you to notice the similarity here. There's the chemical compound for ethyl alcohol. That's what wine produces naturally when it ferments. This just happens to double the potency of it and change the nature of it so that ether does the same thing as alcohol does. It's from the same source in God's order of the chemicals and gases in our universe. But even prohibitionists want it when they're going into surgery. You haven't met one that's such a total abstainer. When they're under surgery, they're not going to touch it. They take so much of it, they pass out. When you pass out from alcohol, all of your bodily functions stop except your involuntary ones. And when you're under ether in surgery, all of your bodily functions have stopped 
except your involuntary ones. We, this is God's definition of drunkenness that we've just looked at in three pages. It is losing steady self-control of speech, thinking, bodily actions. It's getting sick. It's loss of judgment. You've lost your memory. You're doing things that are going to mock you. You're acting like a fool. That is drunkenness as the Bible describes it for us. We've covered basically one strong point as far as looking at the Bible. The Bible has said drunkenness is sin. Let's look at some statements in the Bible, though, about wine itself. Now, the Bible has plainly said drunkenness is stupid, wrong, condemned by God, and ought to be put out of a church of Jesus Christ, and we ought not to be near it. We ought not to be among wine-bibbers. I want you to follow with me Psalm 104, and this is where I hope that there are Bible believers here tonight. This is what the Bible says about wine. He causeth, God causeth, the grass to grow for the cattle, and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth. God has ordained grass to feed our cattle so that we can eat animal flesh. And God has ordained herbs for us to be able to eat plant life that we can bring forth food out of the earth. And three examples. First, wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. Let the Word of God tell you what God thinks about wine. God ordained wine for man from this passage of Scripture. God ordained a purpose for wine in its creation. When He created grapes, skin, fungus, yeast, sugar, the chemical composition of alcohol, God created all that. Man didn't invent that. God created it. And here he states the purpose for it. We know that oil helps dry skin. Does everybody know that? And if you were in the Middle East or Israel, you would need more oil than you may use here. I mean, women like to use oil of Olay, at least I see that advertised, and other oils and creams to keep their skin moist and soft. And in a dry climate, you use more of that. You know, you read about the Bible, they just poured it over their head until it dripped down their garments in some cases. Lots of oil. We, we know that, don't we? The verse says, God made oil to make his face to shine. If you don't do it, if you don't put any oil on your face in a dry climate, it's going to dry out, peel, crack, split, and so forth. You put it on your face, it's going to cause your face to shine. We know bread makes the heart strong. You know, I, I love the Bible. We'll have a seminar sometime of God's merciful and we live forever on the Bible and physical health. The Bible has a great deal to say about physical health. They're just figuring out now. Some of you probably are familiar with some of the things the Bible has said that weren't discovered until the 20th century, like doctors washing their hands between patients. Can you imagine that? The doctors hadn't figured that out until the 20th century. The Bible tells you about touching unclean things way back in the book of Leviticus, 1,500 years B.C. Bread. 
what is recommended as one of the most important things that you can eat today for to counteract heart disease, but bread. Why? Because it has something that they now know is important to us called fiber in it. And its combination of protein, carbohydrates, and fat is the exact proportion you want in your diet. Did you know that bread is 70% carbohydrate, 20% protein, and 10% fat? It's a perfect food. They know that now. They want you to eat your whole wheat bread and get some roughage in your diet and get some fiber. Well, you know, God knew that a long time ago and he ordained bread and men have used it for 6,000 years until the 20th century came along and decided they'd process the daylights out of the stuff and we've got to look hard for real bread. But we also know wine. Let's go to wine now. These are three things God made for the benefit and service of man. Oil, bread, and wine that makes the heart glad. Alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol, you know, if you walked into the average Baptist church and gave people a choice, is alcohol a depressant or a stimulant? Probably 80% of them would say it's a stimulant. Alcohol is not a stimulant. Alcohol is a depressant. Alcohol puts your mind and body and nerves partially to sleep. It relaxes you. It's a depressant. There's other things we drink and eat that are our stimulants, caffeine and sugar and some of those other good things that the prohibitionists enjoy the, on the other end of the scale. But we know wine makes the heart glad, and God said that it would, and that's why he made it, and we know that. Wine cheers men. Grape juice does not make the heart glad. Grape juice just doesn't do it. You can drink distilled water, mineral water, sparkling water, grape juice, milk, tea, honey, and the Bible knows all these things. Listen, the Bible has the word juice. The Bible has the word grapes. The Bible knows all about honey. The Bible knows honey's a great thing. It knows all about milk. It knows all about the word liquor, which means a beverage that, does, that can be fermented or doesn't have to be fermented. The word liquor means liquid beverage. The King James translators had that word. They used it in a couple of places. They didn't use it when they were talking about wine because they should have used the word wine. The Bible has all of these things that it could have mentioned when it talks about making the heart glad, but they don't make the heart glad. Wine makes the heart glad by relaxing a man so that he his when a, when a man comes home from work or when you're uptight about something, wine will relax you. It's a depressant. The same reason people take tranquilizers and antidepressants and other depressants in order to help them relax. Wine commended. God made it. Somebody will say, well, that's the only verse in the Bible that talks that way, that God made wine to make the heart glad. Well, here's four more that say the same thing. Judges 9.13 is a parable. It's a fable. It's actually a fable in Judges 9 teaching a lesson. And the vine said unto them, now you know that vines don't talk. You can get the idea here that this is a parable. And the vine said, should I leave my... And if you'll just add a little V there, we'll get a W out of it. Should I leave my wine which cheereth God and man? 
There's a statement. Wine cheers God and man. It's a good thing. God created it, and it cheers. The Bible says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. Can you believe that? The Bible actually says, Give strong drink. There it is. Give strong. We'll come back to that. And wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. Let him drink, forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. This is the Bible speaking. This is not an advertisement for some alcoholic beverage. This is the Bible. The Bible says that wine will take away a heavy heart by helping you forget your poverty and remembering your misery no more because it's a depressant. It causes you to relax and takes your mind off whatever was bothering you. That's what the Bible says. Solomon would say a feast is made for laughter. We go to feast to laugh and to have a good time. Wine maketh merry. Over in Zechariah, the prophet would say that their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Wine causes the heart to rejoice by taking away the cares and worries that a person may have. This is the Bible speaking on this subject. Page 3. The previous verses clearly indicate God's purpose for wine is to cheer man's heart. We saw it in five different passages of Scripture. When you eat a large meal, a large meal intoxicates you to a degree. After you've eaten a large meal, the the blood that is rushing to handle the digestion of that food causes many of you to do what? Go to sleep. What does a glass or two of wine cause most people to do? Go to sleep. What does a shot of NyQuil cause you to do? Go to sleep. The effect is the same in all of those things. People will use one and condemn the other. The effect is the same, and it's the very same chemical that's accomplishing it when we're comparing it to NyQuil. Here we've got, you know, we use contact, ActiFed. You know what it says in the sight of all those bottles, doesn't it? Don't you? Be careful about driving with one of these in your system. You take... You know, I've, I've seen people that take an antihistamine and they're gone. You know, I don't, I don't like to see them before church taking out one of those little white pills and then sitting still for an hour and a half because they're gone. It, it creates drowsiness and induces sleep. Aspirin, NyQuil, sleeping pills, tranquilizers, antidepressants, anesthesia, and so forth, they give the same effects. But no one's up in arms about these things because there isn't the hatred for the thing like there is for wine. Did you know that some drinks are called cordials? And I'm no expert on drinks, believe me. This is hard enough just to get up here and present this. I'm no expert on drinks, but some drinks are called cordials. And you look up the word cordial, and it's actually a beverage stimulating, comforting, or invigorating the heart. Restorative, restorative, reviving, cheering. It's the common knowledge of man's experience that God's word is true. Our experience confirms God's word. God's word makes it truth. Our experience confirms it, that wine is used to relax, comfort, and cheer. That's why it's used at parties, weddings, fine dinners, and so forth. It causes you to relax and enjoy the time more. This is not an opinion. I'm not selling you anything. I don't have a case of anything to sell you up here. 
when this ends tonight, this is the word of God about this thing called wine. I wonder why they say cheers when they give a toast. Go look up the word in your dictionary. And you'll understand why. It's taken from the Bible in the use of alcohol to cheer the heart of man. Someone will say, that's crazy. We ought to depend upon the Holy Spirit for our cheer. We don't need cheer from anything else. Well, then what? You better get rid of music. You better get rid of... Has, has a good night's sleep ever helped you handle your problems? I can give... There's Bible examples for all of these. You know the music one King Saul had. Evil spirits from the Lord driven away by music. How about food? Does food cheer you sometimes a good meal when you're hungry? How about work? Does it cheer you? Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says it does. How about a new set of clothes? How about money? You know, Solomon said, money answereth all things. Money will cheer anyone up. You go to the mailbox and find a check made out to you for 10000 all of you would be happy. Our nation has abused music. How about sleep? The slothful man wants to do it all day. How about food? The glutton eats too much of it. How about work? The workaholic doesn't have time for anything else in his life. All of these things can be abused, but if they're used, they're God's gift to us. How about perfume? I didn't put on that list. Perfume, that rejoices the heart. The Bible says that. You smell something good, like food when you're hungry, and it'll rejoice your heart. Let's look at another reference. We've looked at the one that God said He created wine for the purpose of cheering man's heart. This is, I want to start with the bottom point here. This is the most neglected verse in the Bible. Are you ready to hear the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy 14, verse 26? And thou shalt bestow that money for whatsoever thy soul lusteth after, for oxen, or for sheep, or for wine, or for strong drink, or for whatsoever thy soul desireth. And thou shalt eat there before the Lord thy God, and thou shalt rejoice, thou and thine household. The context of Deuteronomy 14 is that every year the Israelites were to take 10% of their harvest, convert it to money, go to Jerusalem, convert that money back into, they bestow that money for whatever they wanted. A steak dinner. A leg of lamb. You know what's not mentioned here? is God didn't say they could have any pork because that's condemned in other places. I just want to point out that what's condemned in other places is not mentioned here. What's mentioned here are things that God is allowed. Whatsoever thy soul lusteth after that's lawful. Oxen, steak dinner, leg of lamb, rack of lamb, wine, or strong drink. Go and convert that money and eat it and drink it before me in a family worship service and rejoice at my blessing upon your efforts in, and produce and harvest. That is the word of the Lord. You will not find that in most literature about the alcohol issue. I beseech you to hear the word of God. Deuteronomy 14, 26. This was an annual celebration. It was a feast before the Lord that he Direct, these are his directions. These aren't the directions even of Moses. These are God's directions to that nation as to how they were to handle that feast. God commended wine. God commended 
strong drink. God assumed they would desire such drinks. If you were going to go feast and rejoice, you're going to add what Solomon said makes a feast worth having. And that's the relaxing characteristics of wine. It's to be done with rejoicing. The whole family was to participate. You know, most cultures do that. Many cultures in the world already do that, where weak alcoholic beverages are served as a staple with meals. It was in Israel. They drank it all the time. It's mentioned throughout the Bible. And there it is commended. Remember what strong drink is. Strong drink is an intoxicating beverage from some other source than grapes. Like beer. Cold grain soup. Wine commended. The Bible. John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. John the Baptist didn't eat bread, he didn't drink wine. This is Jesus Christ speaking. And ye say, he hath a devil. The Son of Man is come eating and drinking. Bread and wine are implied. And ye say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. John did not drink because he was a Nazarite, and he was told not to drink. And the angel told Zacharias that's what the case would be. John existed on what What was his diet? Locusts and wild honey. Lived in the wilderness. Jesus did drink wine. He admits it right here. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Drinking what? Every man drinks something. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. What? John didn't drink wine. He was accused of being a wine-bibber, which I'll remind you the last time, a wino. That's what they were calling him. He was a glutton and a wino. A wine-bibber is a drunkard and a habitual drinker. This accusation that the Pharisees made against him would not have been made if all he did was drink water or grape juice, because it would have been no argument at all. Jesus did not deny the use of wine. He could easily have claimed, wait a minute, I've never touched that stuff. He did not do that. John the Baptist did not drink. John the Baptist was a very unique character living in the wilderness. Jesus ate bread, drank wine, and was, could be accused of being a wine-bibber. John the Baptist could just be accused of having a devil because he was so strange in his diet. Let's look at another reference. Paul speaks of the Lord's Supper that the Corinthians held as everyone taketh before other his own supper, one is hungry and another is drunken. Whenever the word drunken is used in English as an adjective, as it is here, it means drunk or intoxicated. Now, if I was to use it as a verb, and, and, or if the Bible was to use it as a verb and say, when they had drunken, that would just mean after they had finished drinking. But it's not used that way here. It's not used as a verb. It's used as an adjective here, and it means to be intoxicated. This verse is saying that at the Corinthian Lord's Supper, people were getting drunk, people were eating and being filled, while others weren't getting anything. That was the abuse that was taking place in 1 Corinthians 11. You can look up a couple of other references to see the use of the word drunken. Paul corrected the abuse of the supper, but he did not change the beverage. 
And remember, we, the Bible speaks of using unleavened bread at the Lord's Supper, and wine is the unleavened drink. Wine is unleavened by virtue of the fact the combination of sugar and the leaven has created alcohol that wipes out all the leaven in the juice. Wine is unleavened because the leaven has been killed in a process God ordained in fermentation. Wine is the appropriate beverage for the Lord's Supper because it was used at Corinth, and that's the only place in the New Testament that we're told about the use, the things that were used at the Lord's Supper. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul would tell, these are verses that the Bible uses to commend the use of wine. Paul would tell Timothy, use a little wine. Paul would say to Timothy about deacons that they ought not to be given to much wine, that older women ought not to be given to much wine. Paul said, use a little. Bishops are warned against wine addiction. When we have the word given, that word means addiction. You're not to be given to it, to have a strong propensity for it, or a strong inclination toward it. Paul allowed deacons to use some. He just said they're not to be given to much. Notice what it says. Deacons are not to be given to much wine, addicted to it, prone to it, inclined to it is what that word means. Older women could use some. Others in these categories could use more. What you'll find in the Bible, in the New Testament, bishops, which is the teaching, preaching, office of leadership in a church, are told not to be given to wine. Deacons and older women are told not to be given to much wine. Everyone else doesn't say a thing except the bottom line is no drunkenness. There are levels of temperance required by the virtue of the office those different people are in. The older women are to be examples to the younger women. Deacons are to be examples, but not to the same extent that a bishop is. And the Bible bears that out in its very use of the qualifications about wine. You know, when we look through the Bible, and there's many, many references, we'll just mention a few here. Abraham and Melchizedek shared it. When Abraham came back from the slaughter of the kings, Melchizedek brought him out bread and wine. Isaac blessed Jacob with plenty of wine in his blessing. David gave it to every person in Israel. A loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and wine. 2 Samuel 6. Nehemiah served it to King Artaxerxes. The priests in Israel drank the best of it. Job's family drank it, according to Job 1. Solomon recommended it for pleasure in Ecclesiastes 9, a verse we haven't referred to yet. Wisdom is described as a woman preparing wine for seekers. If you'll come and drink her wine, wisdom is offering wisdom to you. Jesus provided it for a wedding that we're familiar with. The gospel is compared to free wine in Isaiah 55. Many, many references to wine in a commending way. Now, is wine wine? This question ought not to have to be dealt with, but because there are people who have wanted the Bible to teach something different than it does, they have made the argument that wine doesn't mean wine, it means grape juice. Is wine wine? This is the most popular argument for total abstinence. And the way it works is this. If the verse condemns or says anything about drunkenness or it being bad, then it must be fermented wine. If it's a good verse, like all the verses we just went through, then it must be unfermented wine. 
This is what's called circular reasoning. There is no reasoning that makes any sense in that at all. You are totally subject to someone's opinion about how they're going to handle each verse. And the minute you allow that on the word wine, where will you stop in allowing that on other words in your Bible? We started out tonight with this book right here, the King James Bible. This is the Word of God. We do not believe that wine is put in here because of an oversight of the translators, a malicious design of the translators, or they didn't know better. Ignorance of the translators. That word is in here because God ordained that word. If wine does not mean wine, then what does the Bible mean? Now, there are places in the Bible where we are told to look for a secondary meaning for a word or a figurative meaning. There are places like where it says Jesus said, I am the door. Now, we know that Jesus is not a block of wood with hinges and a knob. So we look for a secondary meaning of that word. But when the Bible says wine and we understand the thing itself in, its, in the place that God intended it, we can look at the word wine and believe that it means wine. There, have, there are people have looked through history and tried to find someone who used the word wine to refer to grape juice. And oh, they can come up with examples. You can come up with examples for anything if you look hard enough. You ought to read a good work by the Jehovah's Witnesses on John 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they changed that to be the Word was a God. They have written very thorough, very well documented evidence for their position. And if we are going to subject ourselves to theologians and Bible changers, you will never end the pursuit for knowing God's Word. God has blessed this book for almost 400 years now. This book says wine, and here's what we want to know. Wine in English has always been the fermented juice of the grape used as a beverage. That is the Oxford English Dictionary. Grape juice is not a secondary meaning at any time since 800 A.D. when the very rudimentary form of English began to exist. Wine has always been the fermented juice of the grape. If you went into a restaurant and asked for wine, they're not going to bring you grape juice. And if you go in and ask for grape for juice, they're not going to bring you wine. Those words are understood. Wine in English, here's the Oxford English Dictionary, has never been unfermented grape juice. If you were to look at an Oxford English Dictionary, and it's a task to look up a word, it's not like Webster's that just gives you four or five word or two sentence definition. The Oxford English Dictionary will trace back the usage of that word all the way back to the first time it was used in the English language and quote the source. So when you look up the word wine, you can go back and read in 800 A.D. English a sentence with the word wine in showing that it was understood as a alcoholic beverage. Every scriptural context that we look at that describes wine or its effects, you know there's some verses that just say, God blessed Jacob with corn and wine. Well, that context wouldn't tell us anything if we were to forget the first half of this. That context wouldn't tell us something. But every context that tells us something about wine, it's an alcoholic beverage. It cheers the heart of man. 
It makes you drunk if you drink too much of it. And excess is wrong. The Hebrew word, yayin, which is the most common Hebrew word for wine, is the same. Most of you have the source at home that you can go check this out. Go look up in Strong's Concordance in the back. If you've ever used a concordance, Mr. Strong has put over there beside the word a little number. That little number is the Hebrew word. Go look it up in the back of the same book, and it will tell you what this word in Hebrew means. It means to effervesce, fermenting, or implied intoxication. It's a fermented beverage. It's wine. The Greek word, a source here, Strong's just doesn't give a, Strong's definitions in the back of the concordance are very small, and he doesn't say very much on this subject either way. He speaks of drunkenness, and he shows the words that are translated in our English Bible. But if you go to Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, which is the current standard, and I don't believe you need any of this at all, but if you want to go do it, you may. What we rely on is the King James Bible and its use of the word wine. Because it makes sense with the whole word of God. And our human experience confirms it is wine, wine. Let's look at a few more examples. People will tell you that the Hebrew words sometimes mean fermented alcoholic beverage. And sometimes they mean grape juice. If they were to read Genesis 9.21 about Noah planting a vineyard and being drunk they would say the word there in that verse is really juice. I mean, it's really alcoholic beverage, excuse me. Then when they came down to Abraham and Melchizedek drinking wine, they'd say that's juice. Then when they come back to Lot, drink, getting drunk with wine from his daughters, they'd say that's the alcoholic beverage. There's three references. They're the first three references in the whole Bible. They're the same word in English. They're the same word in Hebrew. They're playing games with you because you're unable to defend yourself once you leave your English Bible. We believe God has preserved this book. This book has bore more fruit, and it exists. There is no such thing as an original manuscript. No one has an original manuscript to know what God said. We have this. You say, that's a strong statement. Where did that come from? This came from translators being blessed by God to use a variety and multitude of sources. Not just one. Whenever you hear someone refer to the original manuscripts, they've never seen it. They've never read about it truthfully because it has never existed. The original manuscripts, the Ten Commandments were on stone. They weren't put in a book. They weren't. The original writings of the apostles and prophets were never put together in one place. They were lost through and transcribed, copied, translated, copied again, translated again, copied again. And we have the Word of God these are the first three references to the same word in English, the same word in Hebrew. And if you look at each one of these examples, I've given three references, two that condemn, or one that condemns and two that commend, and they're all the same word in any language. David gave the nation of Israel wine, and Esther served it to Ahasuerus, the very wine that Solomon said, don't look at it. Is wine wine? Wine is definitely wine. Wine is a fermented, intoxicating, alcoholic beverage from the grape. Why is it associated with strong drink? If wine is grape juice, why is it associated with strong drink? Whenever we find wine and strong drink, 
occurring together. You never find strong drink by itself. It's always got wine in the verse, every time. They go together, because wine is intoxicating like strong drink is. Why were bishops not to be given or addicted to it? Has anybody heard of someone being addicted to grape juice? Or is the word wine that substance we know as wine today? Why were deacons not to be given to it? I asked the same question, and the aged women were not to be given to it. No one's ever been given to grape juice, addicted to grape juice. The word, it means wine. Wine means wine. You may be thinking, get off this dead horse. It's dead. Don't keep beating it or shooting it. But this is the number one argument that's used, that wine doesn't mean wine, whenever the verse appears to commend the use of wine. Why was Timothy told to use a little of it? Why put a limitation on grape juice? Why not just say use wine if it means grape juice? He was told to use a little of it because he was a bishop and because it was intoxicating wine, the only wine there is. Why is there, why is there a reference made to an excess of it? Why did Peter refer to an excess of wine? Because an excess of grape juice, what is that? I'm giving you references here proving that the word wine in your English Bible means wine. Did the Good Samaritan pour juice into the wounded Jew's wounds? Remember when the Good Samaritan found the Jew and poured in oil and wine? I wonder what good grape juice would have done. Would wine have done any good? It's an antiseptic with a 15% alcohol content. Since when would juice burst old bottles. Remember Jesus speaking of no man puts wine into old bottles or it'll burst the bottles. What, what creates gases that makes it want to expand? But wine. What was offered to Jesus Christ when he was on the cross? Wine mixed with myrrh. Would grape juice dull the pain? Or were the people there used to giving a mixture that would insensitize the person dying of crucifixion to some of the pain? And I want to say this about the Lord Jesus Christ. He refused it. Jesus Christ did not take anything to dull the pain of the crucifixion. He bore the full pain of it. They'll say, but new wine. When the Bible uses the word new wine, that's juice that's just come out of the grape and it's not wine. Well, in Acts chapter 2, those that mocked the apostles in the day of Pentecost said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter said unto them, These are not drunken as ye suppose. Notice the connection here. New wine will get you drunk. Whoredom and wine and new wine will take away the heart, according to Hosea 4.11. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. New wine cut off from the mouths of drunkards. New wine generally means wine of current or recent vintage. If you walked in and asked in a restaurant, would you bring me a list of new wines? Well, they, they're going to bring you, if they've got a distinction in their list, a list of wines of recent vintages. And in the Bible, when it says new wine, that's a wine of the current vintage. We still use that language. We don't have to be confused about it. It doesn't mean grape juice. And older aged wine are those expensive bottles you might have noticed before on the wine list. 
you get back 10 or 15 years in a bottle, you're going to pay for someone having stored that under the proper conditions for 15 years. That would be old wine of more distant vintages and thus worthy of a premium. Then they'll say, but what about sweet wine? The Bible sometimes uses sweet wine to refer to grape juice. The Bible uses the word sweet wine. It says in Isaiah 49, 26, they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine. You know what sweet wine means? It means wine that has been for, that is fermented from, from grapes with a high sugar content. If you go into a restaurant and ask for a sweet wine, what are they going to bring you? A nice red one with a lot of sugar. That's what they're going to bring you. Asking for a sweet wine is not going to result in grape juice anywhere, and it's not going to be understood that way. A sweet wine is distinguished from a dry wine, and God made it that way based on the sweetness of the grapes that were used. That's a sweet wine. A wine made from grapes that have a high sugar content so that you can still taste the sugar. Does drunkenness condemn wine? Let's move to a new point here. What we've looked at is drunkenness is condemned in the Bible. The Bible commends the use of wine in moderate use. And wine is wine in the Bible. Does drunkenness condemn wine? Someone will say, well, drunkenness is such a great evil in America, we ought to get rid of the thing that causes it. Well, I want to ask you this question. Does wine cause drunkenness? Does wine cause drunkenness? I want to answer that by asking you a few more. Does food cause gluttony? Think, think with me. These seminars are to think in the Word of God. Does food cause gluttony? If it does, we ought to be teetotalers. Let's stop eating. Let's get rid of food. Because it's a temptation to gluttony. You fix a big turkey dinner for me and you'll find out just... I shouldn't say that. I mean, a, turkey, a big turkey dinner with all the trimmings is one of my favorites. But that turkey dinner is a good thing. It's the abuse of it by eating too much that would result in gluttony. You know, the socialists in our nation want you to think that way, that wine causes drunkenness, because they reason that guns cause murder. Did you know that every year about 11,000 people die from guns? And they say, well, all we got to do is get rid of the guns and 11,000 people will be alive every year that wouldn't have died otherwise. And you know what men would do? They'd use knives. And once we outlawed knives, they'd beat them to death with clubs. And once we got rid of clubs, they'd poison them. Do beautiful women cause adultery? We ought to get rid of women. There wouldn't be any adultery. Does property cause stealing? These are good questions for you to think of. Does property cause stealing? Property is a temptation. Somebody walks through a parking lot, sees a Corvette there with the top down, keys in the ignition. That's a temptation. We ought to get rid of property. Do stars cause idolatry? Do animals cause bestiality? Where are we going to stop if you're going to blame drunkenness on wine? This is a very important point if we are to understand and believe the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Wine does not cause drunkenness. The human heart causes drunkenness. 
Drunkenness is the abuse of wine. It's the excess of wine. Condemning wine misses the root problem. The abuse of a thing does not condemn the thing. If the abuse of a thing condemns the thing, we have to condemn all these things mentioned up here. Verses condemning drunkenness do not condemn wine. This is the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Please, we're going to have a break in just a couple of minutes. We're late on the break. Follow with me, and I'll hurry through this, but this is exceedingly important. We're just a moment from the break. Does drunkenness condemn wine? This is page 29. Jesus is speaking here in Mark 7. This is also in Matthew 15. When he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me. And he's saying that to you and to me tonight. Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. Jesus is going to teach us proper understanding. There is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. And please notice, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And I say that to you tonight. If any man have ears to hear the word of God, the doctrine,